Well, good morning, Hillcrest. It's my pleasure to be here this morning. Whether you're worshiping us with, with us at Spanish Trail at our campus down there, or you're here in the room at Nine Mile with me, or visiting us online at live.hillcrestchurch.com or on Facebook Live, we're glad that you've joined us this morning to dig into God's word. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know Pastor Jim's been taking us through the entire book of Acts. And I realize that it's taken some time. It's been quite a long journey. But when you think about it, we've actually been able to cover about 30 years of church history in just two years here in our time. So I don't think we're doing that bad. If you remember last week, we left off with Paul and 275 other men shipwrecked and ends up on an island. And that's where we're going to pick up our text today. So if you want to begin turning to Acts chapter 28, the final chapter in the book of Acts, we'll pick up in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul and the crew of the ship, they end up on the island of Malta, and we read here what happens. The, the people of the island come out, and, and in compassion, they, they start to build either a, a large fire or several smaller fires to take care of this number of men that had washed up on shore. It's raining, it's cold, and so they're warming themselves by the fire, and you can imagine Paul coming with, with wood to help out as well, and there's a snake in the pile of wood that Paul happens to pick up, and as he, he goes to put it on the fire, the, the the cold-blooded snake feels the warmth and, and perks up and says, oh, here's an enemy. And so he latches on to Paul's hand, and that's, that's where the people of the island give us this reaction. Now, today there's no poisonous snakes on the island of Malta, and there's some people that would say that this describes an event that couldn't have occurred because there are no poisonous snakes there. But, but keep in mind, this was thousands of years ago, and the same thing has happened in other islands, especially all over the world, where there once were poisonous snakes and there are no more. So I I discredit those, those scholars, so-called scholars, that may believe that, that this is not an actual account. Some people may say, well, Luke never himself says it was a poisonous snake, and so maybe it wasn't really miraculous at all, but I think it's quite obvious from the reaction of the people there on the island that, that they certainly believed it was a poisonous snake. So they see the snake bite him, and they assume, okay, that's it. He's a dead man. He's about to fall over dead, and then he doesn't. Their conclusion is not, oh, it must not have been a poisonous snake. Now they come to the opposite conclusion that he, he must be some sort of God to survive this venomous snake bite. So I think we can all agree that it was a poisonous snake that bites Paul and that there is some sort of divine intervention that happens such that Paul does not get sick 
Paul does not die like they expect, but instead Paul makes it. And if we've learned anything through our study of the book of Acts, it's that when there's a miraculous sign given by God in this time, it's given to validate the message and the messenger. And so that's what's going on here. Even though Luke does not describe an evangelistic encounter per se on Malta, I think it's safe to assume that in Paul's normal daily life, he shares the gospel with these people. Church tradition and history kind of backs that up. There, there's, uh, in church tradition, they believe that this is the start of a church on Malta, and the first pastor of that church was a man named Publius. And Publius is the man who, who Paul goes to visit. He's, he's considered the leader of the island, uh, and the man's father is sick, and Paul heals him. But he doesn't just heal him. If you notice, it's a little different in here. And a lot of the healings that take place throughout the book of Acts, there's just an encounter and the person's healed. But Paul does two things here. He, he first prays and then lays hands on Publius' father. This gives us a perfect picture of what Paul wanted to convey to them. Not that Paul is some god, like they may have assumed based on the snake encounter, but that Paul is praying to God for the power to heal the man. Very important distinction that happens here. So I'll skip ahead a little bit. What happens from here, okay, after this encounter on the island of Malta, eventually the weather's such that they can travel again and, and the crew will sail on up across the sea, up the, the, the coastline of Rome, uh, of Italy, making their way towards Rome. So they come to the port of Patchouli, they port there and then they have to travel by foot the rest of the way to Rome. Now on the way they're gonna, they're gonna encounter a couple cities uh, the Forum of Appius and three taverns. And in those places, believers from Rome come out to meet Paul on his way to Rome. Now, this would be very uncommon for, for a prisoner to get this kind of celebrity treatment. Uh, this is essentially reserved for someone who'd be famous or, or for some hero. And instead, this is Paul making his way to Rome, and the believers in Rome find out about it, and they, they run out to meet him before he gets to the city. So it's an amazing picture of how the believers in Rome viewed Paul and how important he was going to be to the mission of God there. So we'll fast forward a little bit and we're going to pick up in verse 17 where Paul is in Rome. He says there, after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews and when they had gathered he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had pointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the message that you have sent to us, that we can read and understand and know more about you. And as we know more about you, Father, we, we wish to come, become like you. So, Father, this morning I pray you would let your words speak boldly through me, that your people would have ears to hear, that they would perceive what you're saying right to the heart, and that we each would respond in faith in obedience to your commands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, like many of you, had a chance to travel over the last week. Brad mentioned it earlier. Uh, I, I went with some family on an airplane. And for me, that means I went with a, a three-year-old and an eight-year-old on an airplane. And if you've ever tried that, you know that the key to doing that is to have constant entertainment. And so I'm on this flight on the way to Seattle, and I've got my son and my daughter on either side and got screens right in front of them, make sure that they're occupied for the entire flight. And it made me remember this, this, uh, this one flight I had taken some years ago. And I'm sitting on the flight, and, and the person beside me, we're, we're probably about an hour and a half or two hours away from landing, and I see him looking through the, the little entertainment system that's on the back of the seat in front of you, and they're trying to look for a movie. And, you know, I'm, you know, semi-minding my own business, but... Since you're basically sitting in each other's lap, you can't help but see what's going on beside you. And I see them scrolling through the movies, and they, they, they land on one that I've seen before. And so I'm kind of like, well, I would kind of like to see a different movie, but if they want to watch that one, that's fine. And then I start thinking, uh, I don't think they have time to finish this movie before the plane lands. So, so silently when I see it, I'm like, don't pick that movie. Don't, don't pick that movie. You're not going to finish that movie. They pick the movie anyway. They're not listening to the thoughts in my head. They start watching the movie and everything's going, going fine. And then if you know, as you get near the end of the flight, the pilot starts to make a few announcements about you know, where, you're, where you're going to, what kind of weather you've got, and we're getting ready for our approach. And each time that pilot comes on to make those announcements, the movie automatically pauses, right? So every time that happens, my heart starts beating a little faster. I'm, I'm way too involved in this. And so my heart starts beating faster. I'm like, you can't stay paused. They're not gonna finish the movie. They won't know how it turns out. Well, I wish I could tell you that it wrapped up and, and everything was fine and the credits were rolling as we touched down, but I think you can guess by now that didn't happen. So we land the plane, the movie's still going, get to the gate, the entertainment system shuts off right abruptly as the movie is approaching a conclusion. And clearly I was far too emotionally invested in something that had nothing to do with me, but I can't help but think that that's the reaction some of us have to the end of the book of Acts. Right, every, the story's moving along and everything's going great and then suddenly there's this abrupt ending. Okay, Paul's in Rome and he taught for a couple years. And, and, and Luke just leaves us with that. That's the, end, that's the end of the book. So we have to ask ourselves why. Why would he end it this way? First of all, we're, we're not really sure when Luke wrote the book of Acts. <clears throat> Certainly it's possible that, that he wrote it 
as the events were happening at the end, and that's just the end of the story because that's, that's as far as they had gotten. But most scholars would say that, that actually there's a, there's a good chance that, that Luke wrote this a little further after some more events had transpired. And if you know much about Christian tradition or history of the Apostle Paul, it's very likely that this imprisonment wasn't his last. He was probably released after a couple years in Rome, went to do some other things, may have even traveled to Spain like he had, he had desired to do at one point. But then he was rearrested when, when Nero was the emperor of Rome, brought back to Rome, and eventually put to death somewhere around 66 AD. And now if Luke is writing after some or all of those events had transpired, we have to ask ourselves, why don't we read about that at the end of the book of Acts? What, what reason could Luke have for, for withholding some kind of information as critical as the end of Paul's story? Well, two things we have to remember. First, in Greek literature, abrupt endings weren't as uncommon as we might think. So today, we want a story that has a nice conclusion and even a little trailing thought after that so that everybody lives happily ever after. Well, that's not, that's not how their literature worked. And so it wouldn't have been awkward or odd to, to a Greek reader in Luke's time to read the account as is with this type of ending. But even more important than that, we have to ask ourselves, why did Luke write it to begin with? What could Luke's purpose have been? And, and does this ending somehow convey that purpose better than giving us the full story? To find out what the theme of Acts is, we don't have to look any further than the first chapter, verse 8. It's probably the most familiar verse uh, from the book of Acts for any of us, where Luke records Jesus' words and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So clearly the book is not meant to be an historical account of the early church, although it is that. And clearly it's not meant to simply be a biography about Paul or about Peter or any of the other apostles, even though it certainly has biographical elements. What we learned from this is what we learned when we started this whole journey, when Pastor Jim explained to us, when we look at our Bibles and we see the title of the book as the Acts of the Apostles, that's something of a misnomer because when Luke writes, he's writing about the acts of the Holy Spirit. You see, he wrote his gospel showing us how God sent his son, and he wrote the book of Acts showing us how God sent his spirit into the world. So the hero of the book of Acts is, is not Paul, it's not Peter, it's not the, the apostles at large. The hero of the book of Acts is God himself. He's the one who has orchestrated these events. He's the one the book is about. And so with that in mind, we can look at this as Acts being about the effective witnesses to the power of God. And if, and if Acts is about the effective witnesses to the, to the power of God, then we see Rome as kind of a climax. The witness has reached Rome. It's reached the pinnacle of the then known world. It's reached the capital. So when we see that, we know that He's reached a climax and not a conclusion. The conclusion has yet to be written. We haven't reached all people. The conclusion has yet to be written. We still use the power of the Holy Spirit to go and to tell others and to be effective witnesses. But this climax is what he's building to all along, is Paul reaching Rome, which is symbolic of the gospel, now being in position to infiltrate the entire world. 
So if the book of Acts is about the effective witnesses to the power of God, we're gonna take a look at a few things that describe to us what an effective witness is. The first thing we'll look at is that an effective witness trusts God's word. The witness trusts God's word. You see, Paul always wanted to go to Rome. That's no secret. We can look back in Acts chapter 19. It's before he even went to Jerusalem, and, and Luke records this for us. In chapter 19, verse 21, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. We get an even clearer picture of Paul's desire to see Rome in the letter that he sends probably around three years before he actually makes it to Rome. He sends a letter to the believers there. And in chapter one of that letter, Romans chapter one, verse eight, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware brothers that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul had an earnest desire to visit Rome. He had a longing to preach the gospel there. Now he probably didn't envision it working out quite this way, but that's what he always wanted. But his his, his earnest desire wasn't enough to hang his hat on. Right? He couldn't trust in just his desire to go to Rome because he knew that might not be part of God's plan. And so what God did was something very merciful for Paul, and he gave him an assurance. He gave him his word that he would reach Rome. We see that in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. And this is why, this is why Paul is in Jerusalem and being uh, tried before the, the Jerusalem council and then before the Romans Luke tells us, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord himself appeared to Paul and promised him, you will preach in Rome. And if that wasn't enough, we fast forward a little further, and in the midst of this shipwreck, God sends an angel to reinforce that. Acts chapter 27, verse 24, the angel said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So you see, Paul had the word of God. He had a promise from God that he would reach Rome. And that's why neither shipwreck nor snakebite made him doubt that he was going to make Rome. In the midst of the shipwreck, who who was the calm presence? It was Paul. He knew. He knew that it would turn out okay. When the snake bites him, the the natives are are amazed and astonished that he just shakes off the the viper into the fire. And why? Because he had the promise of God that he would reach Rome. He trusted God to fulfill his word. But trusting God's word is, is about much more than just a personal promise that God made to Paul. Paul trusted the word of God because he knew it had the power to save even the darkest of hearts. He knew that the scriptures could convince people of the gospel, and that's why we see in our text in verse 23 of chapter 28, it says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them 
testifying to the kingdom of God, and listen here, and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. If you've been following along in our journey in the book of Acts, this should come as no surprise to you. As soon as Paul reaches the city, he seeks out the Jews that he might share with them that there has been a Messiah, that the one that was promised all throughout the Old Testament has come, and that he is the hope of Israel. He did that at Pisidian Antioch back in Acts chapter 13. He did that in Thessalonica. He did that in Berea. Anywhere he went, first thing he did was find a synagogue. Now, the situation is a little different here in Rome. He's not going as a missionary. He's going as a prisoner. And going as a prisoner, he didn't have the option to go to the synagogue. So in three days' time, when he gets to Rome, he's managed to gather up the Jews that are around and get them to come to where he is that he might share with them. But the point is the same. He trusts that God's word will be effective in sharing the gospel, so he calls those who know, God, know God's word to come to him that he might share the gospel with them and that they might believe. Luke himself, the author of this book and of the gospel of Luke, knew this relationship between the scriptures and the gospel. He knew it very well, and that's why he wrote in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, he writes this. He writes, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's why he wrote his first book, and that's why he wrote Acts as a follow-up to it that you might be sure that God's word is true because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That was Luke's purpose. So an effective witness trusts God's word. Another thing that an effective witness does, an effective witness teaches patiently. Teaches patiently. Very specifically in this case, Paul was very patient in his teaching. Right there in verse 23, it says he taught from morning till evening. He taught all day long. This reminds us of, of Acts chapter 20 back in Troas when, when we heard Pastor Jim share with us that he preached through the night. He preached all night long to the people, being patient, expounding the scriptures. He didn't just give the message and walk away and say, take it or leave it. He was patient with the people he taught, pleading with them to understand the words of God and believe them that they might be saved. But in a broader sense, Paul was patient with the Jews. If we've learned anything reading through the book of Acts, it's that Paul's pattern is he preaches to the Jews and then Jews try to kill him. That's essentially what happens over and over again throughout the book of Acts, and Paul keeps with that model. He doesn't abandon his people, and he's very careful here even in his words saying that I had nothing to bring against my people by coming to Rome. He's pleading with them to know their Savior. Some say that this, this passage in Acts represents some sort of final condemnation of the Jews uh, because we read in, in Acts chapter 28, 26, and 27 this quotation from Isaiah the prophet where he tells them, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them. Then he tells him he's going to the Gentiles. And so some people read this as some sort of final rejection by the Jews. But in me reading the story and in knowing the history of Paul and what he does, I think nothing could be further from the truth. Paul was simply repeating the pattern that he had done all along, patiently teaching the Jews, earnestly pleading that they might understand and know Christ. Now this, this pattern is not unique to Paul. 
right? It's all throughout the scripture. We read throughout the Old Testament, there's this coming and going of the Jews where God shows his faithfulness to them. They turn their backs on God. They follow after idols. They do the things of their neighbors. They forget God and his promises. Calamity happens and they return back to him. That's a pattern that's repeated over and over again. And you think they're never gonna learn. And we read here in Acts that they're doing essentially the same thing. It's playing out the same way with Paul and and God is being patient with them just as Paul was being patient with them. That's the pattern we see and that's the pattern that we read about uh, when Stephen in the early part of Acts becomes the first martyr. He's actually preaching to the Jews and he has this, this same opinion of them. He sees their pattern and he refers to them in Acts chapter seven, verse 51. He says, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. So it was apparent to the apostles that that the Jews were following in the pattern of their fathers. They were rejecting the only thing that could save them. And so we, looking back, you know, from our comfortable pew, we start to get this opinion of the Jews that such a wayward people, so ignorant, how could they fall so many times? How could they fail to see that salvation was in their midst? And we might be tempted to give up on them. until we start to see a little bit of ourselves in the Jews. And we start to understand that that maybe God himself has been patient with us. This also is not a new thought. The apostle Peter writes in his second letter, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. It was a word for his audience, but it's also a word for us today, that God is patient with us. And if he set that model for us, then surely we should accept that model for others. An effective witness teaches patiently. Third, an effective witness takes every opportunity. You see, when Paul was imprisoned, he didn't see it as as a cause for concern. He didn't see it as a reason why he should stop doing what God had called him to do. He saw it as an opportunity to fulfill this mission that he had longed to do for years. Like we said, that's probably not how he pictured things turning out when he said he wanted to go to Rome and to preach. He, He envisioned going like he had done at these other cities and being able to preach openly to all the people. In this case, no, Paul is going as a prisoner. He's under house arrest, but he still takes every opportunity. At the end of our our section here, verses 30 through 32, it says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He didn't take time off, he took the opportunity. God had placed him there for a reason and he knew this is my opportunity to preach, to teach, even in chains. That's not all he did during his time in Rome. We know actually that that he wrote at least four of the epistles that we have in our New Testament during this imprisonment. The book of Philemon that he wrote concerning the runaway slave Onesimus was written at this time as well as letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and to the Philippians. He took the opportunity. The ministry of Paul also teaches us that he took the opportunity to preach to both Jew and Gentile. And that's something that got him in a world of trouble 
but it was according to the scriptures. As we enter this Christmas season, I see the decorations already out and around and, and everybody's getting in the Christmas spirit. And no doubt many of us will, will turn back to, to Luke chapter two and read the Christmas story from there. There's, there's a passage in there where the angel is speaking to the shepherds and it's a passage we all know. Luke chapter two, verse 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the angel proclaimed that it would be for all the people. Just a few verses later, when the young couple, Jesus' parents, take him to the temple, and they see Simeon, who had been promised that he would see the Christ child himself. Verses 30 and 30, 30 through 32, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. He knew it would be for all the people. A few more verses. We get to the story of John the Baptist fulfilling prophecies of Isaiah when he says in Luke chapter three, verse six, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Paul knew that this gift of salvation would be for all people, so he took the chance. He saw the opportunity to preach to the Gentiles and he did it with fervor. Not abandoning the Jews, but expanding the kingdom of God. Paul explains the tremendous impact that he had. He explains it best in his letter to the Philippians. Concerning this imprisonment in chapter one, verse 12, he writes to them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Because he took the opportunity that was in front of him, he was able to reach even those that had him chained. He was being known throughout the imperial guard as the one who was preaching Christ. He took every opportunity. So it's through this lens that the end of Acts starts to make a little more sense to us. Right, we get this really strange language at the the very end that that the the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached boldly and without hindrance? Without hindrance? That's almost comical in this context. Paul is physically chained to a guard all day long under house arrest in Rome, and yet Luke writes that he's preaching unhindered. And now we come to the point that I always ask this question. Whenever I'm reading through scripture, so what do I do with that? Right? I mean, it's great that we can, we can take God's word and read it and understand what happened back in this time. But at some point, you have to ask yourself the question, so what do I do with that? I'll be honest with you, church. There's probably no single aspect to the Christian life that results in more shame or guilt than personal evangelism. I felt it in my own life. I'm not immune to that. I can recall specific examples throughout my life where God wanted me to share, and I didn't. But that's the question for us. Was this mission limited to the first century? Is this just a a story of how God worked then and won't work now? I don't believe so. So are you willing to do what it takes to be an effective witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to trust God's word? 
If we don't believe it, we won't have the power that comes with it. Do you believe, do you trust that the gospel can save even the darkest soul, even the hardest heart? Do you trust that the gospel compels us to be witnesses? Are you willing to teach patiently? You know, a lot of us are, are actually eager to share the gospel in situations where we, we know that it'll be fruitful. You know, if someone expressed some desire or some wish to come to know the Lord, we're all jumping up and ready to share with them the plan of salvation. If there's a mission trip going to a very fertile land that, that we know people are willing to accept the gospel, we can get excited about that and we can go and we can share. But what about when it's not so easy? What about when the results aren't so sure? Are we willing to persevere in prayer and in our witness for lost family members, for our lost friends, for that person whose name just came to your mind? Are you willing to teach patiently? Teaching patiently means we, we can't write people off. Paul had every reason in the world to write off the Jews. Time after time, they were coming after him. He was the reason that he was in, they were the reason he was in chains in Rome. But he chose to teach patiently. We have some more examples of that. William Carey, he's considered the father of modern missions. He took off on a boat to India to reach people for Christ. Do you know when he found his first convert? In his eighth year. For seven plus years, William Carey toiled patiently working with the people in India, hoping to see results, and it wasn't until the eighth year he saw a single convert. That's teaching patiently. What about Hudson Taylor, missionary to China? He goes to China with, with a great vision to reach those people for Christ, begins preaching to them. He's getting no response. He comes to understand that, that they won't trust him because he's not like them. So what does he do? Does he move on to the next group? Does he go back home and say, it's just not gonna work out? No, he learns and adopts Chinese culture, dressing an appearance like them, changing his physical appearance, adopting their customs that he might reach them. And now we know him as one of the most successful missionaries that ever lived. No doubt some of you have heard the story of of a young man from the United States that went and tried to share Christ off the coast of India with a tribe that, that shuns outside contact. Well, I don't know all the details about that and perhaps we'll never know his motivation for doing that if he was called or if he was just doing it. And I think it's, it's up for debate whether his methods were, were wise or not. We probably won't know that this side of heaven but it certainly brings to mind the story of Jim Elliot the missionary, he went down to the Alcas in the Amazon. He went there on fire, charged up, ready to evangelize this people that had never heard the gospel. Painstaking preparations, multiple attempts at contact. And one of his first encounters, he gets with the tribe's people. He and his entire party are killed. And so if the story ended there, we'd have the same questions that we have about this latest encounter, was it the right move? Did God really call him to do that? What was the point of that? See, we know the rest of the story with Jim Elliot because we know how his widow 
and the sister of the pilot who was also killed in that same raid would years later be successful in contacting the tribe and in sharing the gospel with them. And we know that because there's been fruit from that encounter. There has been success. But it took time. It took patience. It took sacrifice. Don't you know that Elizabeth Elliot had to teach with great patience? Reaching out to those who had murdered her own husband. And finally, are you going to take every opportunity? It was Paul's pattern. But are we too busy? Are we too fearful? You should know if if you've signed on to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ that obedience is not optional. You don't get to choose which things we follow and which things we don't if we've made him Lord of our life. So God is bringing us into contact with lost people all the time. And you know what? If your daily life doesn't put you in contact with lost people, then you need to seek out the lost. We're under obligation. Build relationships with your neighbors. Go beyond some of those shallow conversations that you seem to always have with coworkers and those around you. Keep your eyes open. Identify needs and realize that there are opportunities for you to show God's love. And in so doing, you might open a door to a gospel conversation. Not necessarily all called to be foreign missionaries. We're not all going to get on a plane or get on a boat and travel toward a remote land to share Christ with someone who's never heard. But God is going to put people around us in the circumstances that we're already in. I've already said it. Do you realize this is not one of Paul's missionary journeys? He had missionary journeys where he traveled to specific places. God led him to go there and he went and he shared freely. This isn't one of them. Paul is a prisoner. He doesn't have an option of where he wants to go. He doesn't get to to freely roam the streets. But he says, these are the circumstances I'm in and I'm taking every opportunity. If nothing else, these guards will know who Jesus is. If nothing else, I'll invite people to come to this house where I'm forced to stay and I'll preach to them as long as it takes. The book of Acts is a story of how the Holy Spirit took Christianity from a handful of people in Jerusalem and turned it into a movement that spanned the entire known world. God accomplished that mission through effective witnesses. I'm here this morning to tell you that still is planned today. It hasn't changed. 2,000 years later, God's plan is to spread the gospel through the effective witness of his people. He's equipped each one of us to share his word boldly. We have the tools and we have the power if we will trust his word. I've not arrived. I don't know if anyone here has arrived at that point where it's just a part of your everyday life. But even as we are becoming like Christ, we are called to obedience to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer for each one of you this morning. That's my prayer for my own life. That's my prayer for God's church worldwide that we would take every opportunity. This is the word of God. All God's people sin. Amen.